0: You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more.
1: If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune into WP88.7, brave new radio. We've got managers, producers, record labels, concert promoters below.
0: Wednesday at
1: eight PM.
0: Music Pace One Brave New Radio. I'm your professor, Dr. No, I'm your professor, David Kirk Kirkfield, along with Dr. Esteban. Marconi
2: Emeritus.
0: And we are emeritusly joining you on Brave New Radio, or you're he- hearing our podcast, but the Brave New Radio is at the University of William Patterson in Wayne, New Jersey. The podcast is everywhere you listen to podcasts except Spotify, because they took us off because of uh, Marconi and his F-bomb policy yeah. of... Many of
2: you. Probably.
0: Yes. Um, We have a great guest today, Lawrence Perrier, who's the chief commercial officer at Light. Lawrence will be with us shortly. But until that happens, we should give thanks. Should we not give thanks? Yes, let's give thanks. Thanks. Thanks, B. So we want to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent and Kiss, Zach Brown, and T Mail Likes Music. There's only one place for you to go for your band's business management go to VB. Uh, uh, hyphen cpa.com when you're ready we also want to give thanks to christine oi bay a wealth manager at the forefront group it's been a while so we haven't had our oi bay lately have you had your oi bay lately kids christine has helped many professionals all over the world manage their investments plan out for their retirement so, when somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, think about the forefront group and go to Christine at forefront.com.
2: Leave the last oil off for savings.
0: Please do so. Manny Junior Band, 7th edition, alive and well and out. And University of William Patterson, William Patterson University, the former college, the former Patterson State Teachers College, its music business program ranked by Billboard Magazine as one of the best in the history of music business programs. And of course, my emeritus co-host is the man who didn't technically start the one at William Patterson, but he's the one who made it what it is today.
2: Yes, thank you. And certainly being carried forward by my esteemed colleague. Who is I, me. So
0: we are here now, our good friend Lawrence is with us, and Lawrence works for Light, and he is the chief commercial officer, and Light, by the way, is a multi-sided marketplace, that means multi means more than one, multi-sided marketplace for top sports and entertainment brands, seeking an alternative to the secondary market, Light's mission is to fill every seat with real tickets at fair prices and make the entire experience magical. This sounds exciting and fun, and Dr. Esteban, you're going to start, and we're going to learn all about light and what Lawrence is all about.
2: Yes, I am. So if I play, um, let's say, a novice listener, and the mission is fans first and fill every seat with a fair price. So if I was very um, innocent and all this twint- what what's different? Aren't we doing that now?
3: That's a great, great framing. Um It's very interesting in that when you think about the history of online ticketing, a couple of things come to mind, at least for me. And when I say these things out loud, I think it's a lot of folks haven't thought about the problem statements this way. The first one is that we've had online ticketing now for basically a generation, you know, since the, since the mid nineties at this point. And when you, when you go through the ticketing experience, it's unlike any other e-commerce experience. In fact, I say to people, it's not e-commerce. It's online ticketing. It's, it's, um, it's the sad step cousin, um, of e-commerce. It doesn't have any of the things that you come to expect in a wonderful e-commerce experience. It's not easy. Things are available at weird dates and times, not all the time. Um, you can't return things. Um, you can't easily move them around. Um, there's a lot of tolls for every activity you want to take against your ticket. It's basically, you wouldn't tolerate that kind of restriction or lack of access or, or unease of access in almost any other transaction in your life. Um, and so online ticketing and e-commerce are two completely different things. The other is that um, the way our industry has typically defined yield management has meant let's make as much money as humanly possible. And I don't say that naively. What it's really meant was let's take the best tickets and sell them for as much as possible and then try to sell the back of the room. We'll take as much as we can get there as well. But if the front seat sells for 5,000 and the back seat sells for $40, we've done a good job. And I think what we're trying to say is um, yield management is not about making as much money as possible from any single unit of inventory. It's about treating an event or even a set, a collection of events as a portfolio. And let's try to make sure that each one of those events has the highest sell-through as possible Um, because all the stakeholders then benefit as opposed to just some of the stakeholders. So if you have a full event, think about it as an attendee, it's a higher energy level. It's more fun. As the artist or the athlete or whomever the talent is, that's what your aspiration is. You always hear like no artist wants to go on stage and see um, empty seats. And then for the financial uh, risk taker or stakeholder in the event, um, ticketing is just a subset of the revenue being generated that night, arguably for the risk taker, the piece they make the least of. So if they have a full venue, they're selling more beer, more popcorn, Uh, more parking, all the other things that maybe sit outside of the pot with the artist or the talent, um, but also regardless of whether they're splitting it or not, it's higher margin. So we think about the business a little bit differently than some of the incumbents. And that's why our product and our operation is different.
2: So how does it work? If I'm putting on an event, let's say I'm a promoter, Midwest promoter, and put them on a small festival. And I want to make certain that every fanny, every seat is filled. And I've heard about you guys. And I make the cold call. How do you answer?
3: <laughs> well, our products evolved a little bit over the last few years, um, as you can imagine. Um, but it's all centered around the idea of um, a dynamically priced wait list. And so I'll break that down. Yeah. Version one of light, was a solution to help promoters to take control and combat the secondary market. So an event would go on sale, either the entire event would sell out or price levels within the event would sell out. As those things started to sell out, you know, in the old days, your website would say sold out and then the fan wouldn't know what to do. So they'd go elsewhere. They'd go to social media or StubHub or Craigslist or any of these other places to go try to find tickets. Now it'll say sold out, get on the wait list. When a fan clicks on the wait list button, that launches light. And the algorithm is doing a bunch of work in the background, um, because it sits behind hundreds of thousands of events and transactions. It's learned a lot about the demand curve, not only for your event, but for similar events. And in fact, all events, and there's some truisms about that, um, your distance from the event, if it can tell from your IP address, the distance in time until the event, um, what's going on with pricing in other marketplaces online. The algorithm is looking at a bunch of different factors, but it's tuned so that it offers you a price that's designed to get you to say yes.
2: Okay. So
3: it's not trying to get as much money from you as possible. It's trying to get a yes from you. And so you click, yes, I would like that price. If you can get me two tickets at that price, here's my credit card. I now have a reservation. You're not charged yet. You're just on a wait list with a price. The other part of that is where does the inventory come from? Everybody who's sitting on a ticket to one of those sold out price levels or events gets an email and it says, hey, thanks so much for buying a ticket to this Midwestern small festival. Um, If you can't go, don't sell your ticket bring it back to the official point of purchase and you can get your money back. And so the algorithm sort of works the same way in reverse. You come back, you click the button that says, return my ticket. And it gives you a price that's designed to get you to say yes. And generally it's tuned to give you back face and fees so that you feel like it was truly a return. In some cases, you can imagine you might get more because we have so much demand on the wait list. We want to free up inventory. So we might pay you more. There might be cases um, where you get less. Maybe it's the day of the event and you're sitting on, say, a three-day weekend festival pass. Um, The algorithm sort of knows you'll be happy. You'll take 90 cents on the dollar because you just want to get yourself out of the position. Um, So we buy the ticket back from you. And through integrations with primary ticketing platforms, we cancel that ticket. And the primary platform issues a new ticket to the next person on the wait list. That was light version
1: 1.0.
3: What happened over time was we took that dynamically priced wait list and put it before the on sale. And so now a lot of promoters use us to understand their demand before they ever go on sale.
0: Was in 1.0, which you just mentioned, was light the primary ticket seller, or maybe ticketmaster was, but then you came in and you fulfilled that second portion of it, the return. The short answer is the platform works whether you
3: have a primary ticketing partner or not. So we have a suite of tools that can uh, a suite of e-commerce tools that essentially can do the functions of ticketing. But the majority of our business is built upon integrations with third-party ticketers, yeah, so with your primary ticketer.
2: When uh, you get put on a waiting list. Um, And you said that we're going to make that price very favorable to the person on the waiting list. When do they get to know what that price will be, even if they don't never get a ticket?
3: They know before they get on the wait list. So they're getting on the wait list and they're accepting a price um, and then saying, yes, I would like that price. If you can get me two tickets at that price or whatever it is, I'll take that price. Um, So nobody's, nobody's signing up until they know what they're paying. Um, and there are no, they're under no obligation to take the tickets when we get them for them.
2: So in that bunch or that bracket of tickets, let's say they were $50 tickets, um, does that price ever go up to the waiting list person as the demand is so, you know, the, the demand grows?
3: No, individual people, once you make a reservation, you're locked in at that price, Um Obviously, if you make a reservation today and I make a reservation in a few hours or a few days or a few weeks, I'll get a different price. We'll all get different prices because they're based on market conditions at the time or our individual situations, whatever the algorithm sort of knows at that moment. But once you're locked in, you're locked in
0: and you're just in a queue. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When it started, I, I seem to recall, and it might be right before COVID happened, what I, what I recall Light, was was, um, a way for promoters, and I guess uh, connected to that agents and, and artists, to judge, like you mentioned, judge demand in a market. Do we want to go into Boise? Do we want to go into Philly? W- whatever market it is, and use your service to determine, is there demand in that market for us to even go? And since the consumer isn't even, they're just getting on a wait list, uh, you, the band can then say, you know what? We 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 to, to make this work, we need to pay, play a six hundred and fifty cap room. It appears that we have demand for like a two hundred and fifty. doesn't make sense, so we're just not going to go there. Um, is that sort of a, a tool or a, a use of light?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And the problem statement we were dealing with there was we increasingly had promoters and artists coming to us saying, you know, in this day and age, like the the stats that we're making decisions off of, aren't necessarily it's not necessarily real demand signal so the example might be social media or streaming numbers and especially if you're a mainstream rock pop or hip hop artist your streaming numbers might just be based on people really loving your your single but they might not necessarily be people who would reach into their pocket and buy a ticket there's a big difference especially with the consumption data um, in terms of somebody who just likes a song and actual purchase intent and I think, you know, pre COVID and, and running into COVID, that was the problem statement that agents and other people planning tours were starting to wake up to was that, yes, we have all this data, but it's not necessarily the data we should be listening to. So the big innovation around the wait list is that it's a fan actually putting a credit card down. And that's a pretty big indicator of purchase intent. If I've gotten you to reach into your wallet, even if I don't charge you in advance, you've, you know, the act of entering your credit card, that's pretty good demand signal.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think
0: you're right. I mean, that's so important because you can do a free show and um, you can start at the bottom. So you have an artist and they want to do a show and it's an indie artist early stage and they make a Facebook event and all these people, you know, maybe 60, 75 people say interested or going, you know, night of show, you're going to get five of those people you know so that it's an inexact but you know a lot of them are not going to go and you also know you're probably going to get a decent amount more walk up than people buying in advance at that very early indie level um but i think you're right if an artist can get somebody to i read a good article the other day about a, a youtuber this girl who had been a youtuber she went to comic-con not too long ago and she was really big on youtube And so she gets this booth at Comic-Con and she's thinking, all these people are going to come. I'm going to sell merch. It's going to be the next big thing for me. And nobody came because what she did on YouTube did not translate into the physical world of people buying tickets, buying merch, doing something more than this. And in music, so much is driven by Spotify and streams, but so many of these streams are passive listening streams that you're not necessarily developing fans. You're just developing streams And those numbers look good, but are they really active fans? And what Steve always talks about is creating that passive fan into an active fan. And I think it's even harder these days to get the active fan. It's it's much more easy to get the passive fan. And I think what you're talking about is how do we root out those active fans? And even if they do one thing, like even into social media, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but social media, just to get somebody to tap like. Just don't even comment, tap like or share. It takes literally two seconds and people don't do it. And those who do it, that's like a big deal these days. They took three seconds to do something with my content. That actually means something that translates into something. Um, and it's so that seems like kind of where you're going with that.
3: Yeah, I think the thing that that you zeroed in on that I just want to I wanna tease out a little bit um is the example of the YouTuber. And that's something that um we we i think you'll see in the next few months that we start to roll out more campaigns with people who fall into that sort of category of creator so not just musicians um there are so many people now whether they're podcasters or YouTubers or Twitch celebrities or what have you TikTok people who have built meaningful audiences and they're really trying to figure out what does this mean like am i is this just lots of people show up when i you know, when I play Call of Duty on Twitch and that's all they want from me? or can I interact with them? Can I monetize this fan base? Is there a relationship to build? And so I think we want to adapt some of our tools to empower some of those people. Um and that goes, you know as as sort of um as jaded as it can sound, um I guess on to certain ears, that's what the magical piece is about. Like if you go through our 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 e-commerce process, it's really simple. It's not a lot of clicks. It's very transparent. But it also has to be a magical process for the creator and the business person. I don't want to replicate some model that's out there that somebody else is doing good enough. Um, The incumbents are very powerful. Um, Vertical integration is um, a reality in the live entertainment business. There's no reason to go build the better mousetrap over there. Um, But there's a lot of people that aren't served well by it. And we want to create a, a universe for them. And so this is, it's, you know, we've always been very conscientious at light to say, we're not anti-anybody. There's business models. There's, there's all kinds of um, current state that works for a certain category of artist or a category of entertainment brand. And that's all well and good, but there's a generation and there's a type of, of person or entity that needs and wants something different. And that's, that's what we're looking to build.
2: So what's Light's business model?
3: Basically we eat what we kill. <laughs> so, um, if you're a promoter, um, you don't, you don't pay us per se. Um, you know, one, one of the things I learned early on in my career from working with artists is that, um, you know, it's really hard. Like, it, you don't want to go around asking people to write checks, um, in the entertainment business. <laughs> it's, it's really hard. Um, but, um, if you can help, if you can help build their business or help expand their business, um, that revenue share model, um, especially when, you know, when you're when you in a, a startup mode or a fast growth mode or proof of concept mode, however you want to describe it, um, that's much more palatable. And, um, and that's really where we've carved out a sweet spot for ourselves um, is our projects essentially function as joint ventures. They're not legal joint ventures, but they're revenue share deals. So we create a pot of money, a bunch of pre-approved costs come out of that pot of money, and we split the rest.
0: So it's interesting, like um, the pre-approved yeah. costs, if you compare that to like a live, because you're in sort of the live sphere, whether it's music or whatever, that's like your house nut. We know um, that this amount of money, no matter what, it's going to cost this amount of money and then over and above that. It's like any live deal. Like if you do a, uh, if a band does a door deal at a at a venue, um, the split of whatever it's 80-20, 70-30, 60-40, that's after some initial expenses are covered such as uh staffing or just the the front of you know front of house sound person or something so it sounds like that's you guys are kind of built like that almost like a door deal but it's a different kind yeah, of yeah
3: i think the only distinction i would make and uh i apologize if i'm being defensive is that um there's no fees from us in other words the expenses that come out are just like variable third party costs so credit cards um Sometimes there are transaction fees to hit the primary ticketing system, um, but we're not baking in like a portion of my salary or the person that services your account. We try to keep it very transparent where it's like these are the costs to operate this thing. Um, Let's just take those out of the top. So, uh, you know, because I don't want to be in a situation where I say we're going to charge a management fee out of this money. Because then I would expect the other side to say, well, let me throw some of my overhead in there too as a cost. So it's like, how about if we all pay the cost to run our own business and then we split the cost that somebody else is going to charge us? So that that tends to be the ethos behind it.
2: So have you done Ticketmaster shows?
3: Yeah, we have. We have. And um, we don't have a, a technology integration with Ticketmaster, but they have a bunch of tools that they make available to the universe. So um, we use their, their transfer protocol. So if you have a Ticketmaster account and you have tickets... You know you can transfer them to people, and so our our interface and our experience leverages that. So when a fan returns a ticket to Light, they're essentially transferring it to Light, and when we sell a ticket to somebody on the wait list, we're essentially transferring it to them. So there's all the primary ticketing platforms have varying degrees of integration. Some of them just publish open standards and open APIs, or have partner programs where they'll let you integrate. Others have just different mechanisms to use. Um, and that's how we do it with with Ticketmaster.
0: So if I buy a, a Ticketmaster show and it does have uh, certain fees, venue fee, convenience fee, um, whatever, other, yeah, et cetera, the other fees. Um, and then the consumer buys the ticket and then they return it and it ends up being returned to light. Um, you become the owner of that ticket. Correct. You're no longer representing the venue. Um, So the venue is not taking another uh, venue fee or convenience charge or anything like that, the way it happened the first time. Does that make sense? That's right. I, let me make sure I follow the, the, the thread through so I answer you correctly.
3: So yes, we pay the fan um, what they paid for the ticket, basically based on the dynamicism I explained earlier, when we sell the ticket to the next person on the wait list, they just pay a price. They don't pay a price plus all this other stuff. Um, If there are any charges going back to the primary ticketing company, because like I said, some of them do charge like a transaction fee. It's not the same as their outside ticketing fee. It's more about, it's kind of like a fee for providing me the service for access to their system. And it's like a plumbing charge basically Mm -hmm. um that's just that's baked that's on the inside of the price we charge the fan so the fan doesn't have to do any math like if it was an $80 ticket the first time around and now it's you know $87 on light it's $87 it's not 87 plus 90.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: so a ticket master their client is the venue with light your client is who? That's a great question.
3: Our client can be anybody, any of the official stakeholders in an event. And so to be more specific, there is no light marketplace without us having a relationship with one of the stakeholders. So we could have a deal, say with a venue and the venue says, we're going to have light turned on for all of our shows. We could have a relationship with a promoter. generally a festival promoter right, will say, all of my events, all of my festivals, um, because I control the experience, I'll have light installed. But in some of the use cases we were talking about earlier, our relationship is directly with the artist. And the artist and their agent, when they're going out doing their show deals, they say, hey, light's part of our our program, like any other marketing partner we might have, or any other third-party partner, we need to have this as part of our show deal. So again, our partner could be any of the official stakeholders for the event. And then how the money works is sort of open for the other stakeholders, right? Like a uh, a venue could say, you know what, if we generate money through light, we're going to add that to the settlement with the artist and just treat it as ticketing revenue. Um, or some venues say, that's money we created locally. We're not going to share that. Like we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't necessarily get a vote in how the mm-hmm. stakeholders divvy up the money. But I would say the general best practice is that they're just putting it in the show pot. It's the it's the sort of right fair thing to do. Mm-hmm.
2: So soup to nuts, I paid on Ticketmaster hundred dollars, and now I can't go. So you're going to give me a hundred bucks. Yeah.
3: Generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Now the show bomb, the the band is still going on, but the guitar player broke his hand. So those tickets are now 40 bucks and 30 bucks. And I go to you for a ticket. You're going to sell me the ticket for.
0: Well,
3: if the event, if the event was sold, first of all, generally speaking, we wouldn't be accepting returns on tickets if the event wasn't sold out. So that's how we protect the stakeholders in the event. Yeah. Um, although, although there are cases where some of the promoters who have used us for a long time understand or have come to understand through working with us that um basically they get insight now into how their demand curve works, because as as you guys probably know, a lot of events won't sell out until much closer to the show day, especially in this new world we're in like people, we could talk about that as a separate matter later in the discussion, but buying patterns are definitely different now, but some promoters understand now, you know what? I may not be sold out today, but I am going to be sold out in six weeks. And I don't want that person taking that piece of inventory and putting it on the unaffiliated secondary market. So, you know what? I'll let them return it now because six weeks that ticket's going to be gold for me. I don't want it out there floating around. I want it back. Um, so, it's it's evolving a little bit, the use cases of how promoters use us. But generally speaking, um, you know, the market the the algorithm responds to the market. So if there's a run on tickets, prices will go up. Um, and if there's no demand for a show, prices can go below face. There are definitely instances on light where individual transactions go below face. But because we treat the event as a portfolio, we try to get the event to right. generate a return not any individual ticket
0: right so does that do you do sports like let's yeah say- we do a
3: little bit we we've we've just started to um we actually just launched with uh something called the avp which is a, a volleyball tournament uh recently purchased by bally's um they actually it's it's like you know it's one of those uh like sleeper events that um if you don't know about it you don't know about it but if you're in that world it's like the biggest thing to you um We've worked with AEW, the, um, the sort of alternative wrestling uh, federation to WWE. Um, we've done some college sports. We've primarily built our business in the uh, US festival market um, and the independent venue market. Um, we've expanded overseas over the last couple of years, but music's always been our sweet spot. From there, we moved out into uh, things like Comic-Cons, like fan fan conventions. We've done very well with... Um, Comic Con, science fiction conventions, book conventions, um, but sports is sort of the next frontier. Uh, as as you guys know, the uh, you know the sort of big four sports leagues in America are very sort of integrated and, and consolidated. But there's a lot of interesting activity at the collegiate and sort of the next level down of sports. All mm-hmm. kinds of regional and and non mainstream sports leagues that have passionate followings, um, who are frankly easier to do business with.
0: Yeah, esports, I would guess, would be something that you guys could get into because they're selling out Arthur Ashe Stadium and things like that.
3: Yeah, that's right. There's all these interesting areas that um that are either growth opportunities for light or just more generally, like the as the live experience comes back and people look to interact and connect in, in a live context. Um, I think there's all there's all kinds of events that that are just as interesting and potentially just as sort of lucrative from a business perspective as as mainstream music.
0: The reason I had brought it up is because Dr. Esteban mentioned you buy a ticket at face value or the face value, uh, the ticket is actually worth less than the face value. And I was thinking a sports team, like uh, I'm a big Mets fan. Um, everybody thinks Sorry, the Mets, I, I don't know why you would say that, why you would hurt me like that. So I'm going <laughs> to give you more questions to put you on the defensive later. They're done. <laughs> but um, everybody think the Mets are going to at least make the playoffs this year. Um, but if we're in August, and the Mets are 15 games under 500 which is has happened too often but it could happen yeah. all of a sudden these $75 tickets you know they're worth $33 or whatever um so that's that was just an example but you're not in that business so it doesn't really
3: no but it's interesting you know the professional sports leagues baseball in particular they have so much inventory Um, even, even a great team, you know, has trouble moving tickets Tuesday night on a non-division rival type game. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember when I I lived in New York for the better part of 20 years and my first, when I was first sort of making it in my career, um, my first season ticket package at Yankee stadium was the Tuesday night, $5 games. And, um, and that was during the, you know, the nineties when they were a very reliable team, if not world series winner. But I can't tell you how many times I saw the Yankees play, you know, the Royals on a Tuesday night or the Blue Jays on a Tuesday night. Um, but so, yes, there's a ton of inventory. But the other thing, too, is the sports leagues are very sophisticated um, and they've much more, they're much more mainstream in how they use ticket brokers and the secondary network for distribution and for pricing data. Um, they're not shy about, about leveraging all the different tools at their disposal and all the different channels at their disposal in a way that, you know, music artists are either just coming around to, or may never be fully comfortable with. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's always crazy. Like when I travel for business, I try to go to a new baseball stadium every, you know, every year or every business trip. And it's incredible how you could sit behind home plate in almost any stadium on a week night for under 20 bucks. It's crazy. Yeah.
2: Okay so what's the uh future in terms huh. of making this continue to work
3: yeah that's a great question i think um a lot of a lot of the energy in ticketing um was focused on the supply side especially in america right like primary ticketers fighting it out over a finite number of contracts to control venue inventory And that's led to a lot of um, distortions in the business model. Venues can get um, big checks up front. A lot of times they'll get signing bonuses, like the economics um, of primary ticketing. They're wacky and and it's always a crowded market, right? Like as somebody who's been an observer of it for the better part of 25, 30 years, there's these cycles where there'll be a bunch of upstarts, especially in the mid-market. Um, and then they'll either fail or get bought out um but it's very rare that a new ticketing brand gets built and established in America yeah. um and so that's not really that interesting <laughs> um but it's gonna you know and we're we're I think we're in the midst of one of those cycles now it's a very noisy mid-market and it's everybody it's very zero-sum if I win this client that means you've lost the client like we can't we can't collaborate we can't share a client the way you can and other territories where there might be multiple ticketers for a venue. So um but that's everybody focusing on the supply side. We very deliberately focused on the demand side. Like if we can aggregate demand and give the financial stakeholders in an event sort of actionable insight into their demand, that starts to look like business model innovation. That starts to be like okay, now we could think about a different world where but, you know, under the example you guys gave before, an artist starts to learn, like, you know what? I I can play 30 major cities reliably, but you know what? In the tertiaries or in the secondaries, if I can tour with maybe a scaled down production, or if I tweak the programming a little bit differently, I could afford to go to all these other places. And now all of a sudden, instead of touring every three years, maybe I can have a more reliable career. Maybe I could do things that are, more creative. Maybe I could do a different type of presentation um, because most of the artists that we all know and love, they're they're sort of, a lot of them are interesting outside of just coming out and doing the big extravaganza. Like I might want to see an artist, uh, you know, go on a book tour with an author and talk about a topic that's of interest to them. Or I might want to see them do a cut down version of their show, or I might want to see them do a DJ set or whatever it is. Like Generally, a creative person um, is going to have creative ideas. And how do we empower that? How do we help them make money from it in a in a um, in a respectful way of their fan base? How do we keep more people working longer um, so that you know a pop star's career in life doesn't look like a professional athlete's career in life? Like, I want somebody to be able to to sort of pursue their their muse for as long as possible. Um, and I think taking all the money off the table um, every time or too early in your career is probably not the best way to go. But why wouldn't you do it if you're afraid that you don't you don't know what your shelf life is. So I, I'd like to I'd like to focus on the demand, um, help artists understand who their fans are, where they are, develop that relationship, and over time, just have the ecosystem have more health to it. If more people are going to more events, I'm really happy.
2: Rapino uh, was just in front of the Senate, whatever committee again, because of the job they didn't do with Swifties tickets. And when we, they were first allowed to buy Ticketmaster, the, the deal, if I recall, was that you could own Ticketmaster if the venues were allowed not, the venues didn't have to exclusively use Ticketmaster. So why do we still have a monopoly?
3: Oh, that's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, I, I don't know from monopolies. Like I, I'm, I, I, for legal definitions and et cetera, I, I don't know. What I do know is that, um, let, let me give you some of the positive ways to answer the question. Primary ticketing is difficult. We've seen the biggest e-commerce company, one of the biggest e-commerce enabled companies on the planet in Ticketmaster fall down trying to you know uh, execute it on sale um you can imagine analogs would be like what if you know amazon's going to have say on any given friday they have all the best-selling albums all the best-selling video games and all the best-selling books and all the best-selling dvds come out at the same time yeah yeah they don't fall down yeah so primary ticketing is uniquely hard um we forget that it's not just the front end uh the front end storefront for fans like if you're a ticketmaster venue that's your enterprise that's, that's like more than your cash register like that's your inventory management system that's your it's it's a it's a platform that you're running your business off of um and so how many of those do you want installed i'm not sure that um and you know there's all these artifacts of how the american ticketing market's different from say the uk and some other territories but so i think we have if we have a monopoly, or if we have a few dominant players, um, it's because it's serving both sides of the market right now. The venues, um, the venues have a tremendous revenue stream from their primary ticketers in the form of fees and advances and guarantees. They have a reliable, stable system, um, and that behooves you know a couple of the larger, vertically vertically integrated vendors. Now, all that said it may or may not necessarily need to be that way. Um, but it's a long-term process of education, new technology solutions. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of entrenched interests that would have to come around to changing the system. The final point I'd say is I, I'm just not one of those people that believe the Taylor Swift thing was, um, was a fiasco for anybody except the fans. Mm -hmm. Um, when all is said and done, she will have grossed more money in a single day than probably any other artist ever. And I don't think she's that upset about it. Um, it wasn't her first go around using um, Ticketmaster. Um, it wasn't the first time there were controversies with for her using Ticketmaster. So I don't, it doesn't strike me that she's terribly unhappy or dissatisfied um, or that any of the business stakeholders are really unhappy. Would they have liked for it to not fall down? Maybe, but you know, She's the woman that took down Ticketmaster. She, she, her fans are so passionate; they knocked out Ticketmaster. Right. That's that, that's bragging rights, you know. Right.
2: Well, was it a promotional thing? You you believe that all the tickets had to go on sale? All the tickets went on sale at the exact same time, instead of putting windows up, that would have been so much more sane.
0: Yeah.
3: The thing I can't reconcile, and I I'm hoping that there's someone smarter. Than me out there who will reconcile this for me two things yes i don't think everything had to go on sale at the same time like there's like there's there's literally no reason for that in fact i don't know why taylor swift tickets aren't always on sale i don't know why i can't go to taylorswift.com and reserve two tickets for seattle and then when she books a show in seattle i just get a text that says hey lp you've got two tickets to see taylor in seattle do you want them reply yes you don't want them reply no like there's no reason for me to have to go anywhere to get tickets I should just they should just always be on sale when it's your birthday why can't I just give you two tickets to your favorite artist and then when they come you'll get the tickets. so that so that piece is just antiquated broken the business equates the on sale with the marketing Mm -hmm. they're they're they're, it's not like that in almost any other realm um the other point And now I think I forgot it because I talked myself out of it. Um, Oh, that problem was supposed to be solved with the verified fan solution. Yes. So that's the other piece that somebody smarter than me needs to explain, which is everybody came in, they registered. Um, How is it there was unprecedented demand if you captured the demand? And why didn't you just meter the number of people that could get in? Um, Right. There were ways to do this. You know, I, I I worked on something similar with the Roger Waters wall tour back in 2009, I think it was. And we basically built a manual version of Verified Fan for Roger. And you went to the wall. When the tour was announced, tickets didn't go on sale at the same time. He announced the tour. And then you went to his website. You picked the five cities you were most interested in. And you registered. And then behind the scenes, we manually combed all of that data. We took out duplicates. We took out patterns. Like we did a bunch of work to get very clean lists. And then we did on-sale windows where we only let chunks of people in at a time. So nobody had to rush. We would say to everybody, you've got 24 hours. It doesn't matter if you go now or 10 hours from now. You've got 24 hours. And then we will let in the next bunch of people and a next bunch of people. And very few of those tickets wound up on the secondary And it was one of the biggest tour events, you know, of the first part of this millennium and didn't crash. So these things are all fixable if you want to fix them.
0: I think the brilliance of Taylor Swift is Beyonce made her announcement and I think tickets have started going on sale for Beyonce. But I say I think because I'm not 100 percent sure, but everybody knew when Taylor Swift tickets went on sale. Like Incredible. I think that's part of the brilliance of her, and uh, there's an interview out there that I was just listening to today. Bob Lefett has Fred Rosen on Fred Rosen's the guy who basically started Ticketmaster and built Ticketmaster to kind of where it is today uh and um. He was asked about that. He first of all said the Ticketmaster is not a monopoly. He didn't think it was, and he gave some reasons. But he also uh, alluded to some of the things that you talked about is if you go to a grocery store, they only have one point of purchase system. They only have one inventory management system. So if you go to an arena, are you expecting them to have multiple versions of that so that we aren't dealing with a monopoly? you know. So it's just kind of interesting. Um, but I wanted, because we're actually starting to run against the clock. And I do have one question that you uh, did allude to a little earlier ago. And basically you mentioned how buying patterns have changed since COVID. So can you kind of talk about what you have learned, what your team has learned about ticket buying patterns, specifically with music?
3: Yeah. I'll tell you a little bit about what we've seen, what our clients are seeing, as well as uh, some of the feedback we're getting from colleagues in the field. That is, um, all the different points in the purchase cycle or in the demand curve um, are behaving in less exaggerated versions of themselves. And by that, I mean, outside of some of the large superstar events, um, the ones that get all the headlines, uh, I mean, actually to, to preface the answer, you know, there's more shows than ever not doing well right now. And I think that we're not seeing that as widely reported. It gets lost in the Live Nation as record-breaking numbers or so-and-so's tour is selling for $5,000 a ticket. Um, the haves and the have-nots in our space have never been more pronounced, um, at least not in the 25, 30 years I've been paying attention. And, um, But, you know, outside of some of these isolated events, the on-sales are not as intense and the end traffic... Um, The other end of the curve is not as intense. So I've had promoters say, you know, there's definitely shows people want to go to, they buy the tickets early, but we're not getting those people that said, okay, mental note, this show's on sale. um, I'll get tickets a little bit closer to it. You're losing those people. They're either distracted with other things or they weren't adamant and passionate enough about going. Um, So, you know, it used to be, there'd be a big spike and then it would trail off over time and there'd be uh, a spike at the end. The spike's not as high, trails down a bit faster, and it never comes back as, as fast. So, um, you know, I think it's going to reinforce some bad behavior around making the on sales more of an event. Whereas I'd rather see ticketing move to more of a retail model where tickets are on sale all the time, and then the marketers come in and just give you reasons to come by that week. Um, maybe it's Father's Day, maybe it's back to school, maybe it's Christmas, whatever it is. Um, and, and think like retailers and marketers, as opposed to, let's take everything and make it about this one day or this one five day period where everybody has to figure out the best way to get tickets and it's anxiety inducing. And, but, you know, I had this other theory, which I don't want to believe is true. But I wonder if fans have been conditioned that part of loving the event so much is the hell you have to go through to get there. Um <laughs> I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. There's not mm-hmm. some truth to that. Like you enjoy it more because man, I really had to figure this out. And now I'm here. I don't want to believe that, but I wonder if there's an element to that. Like I've, I've, I've ascended the, the through, through the seven chambers and now I've made it.
0: <laughs> Remember people used to sleep outside. They'd sleep, you know, uh, oh, yeah. ticket here in Jersey, you know, spring steam tickets would go on sale. And you'd see a line of people just in sleeping bags that morning or, you know, from the night before, um, waiting for them to go on sale. That was sort of like a rite of passage for a lot of young people back in the, we'll call it the 80s and maybe early 90s. Um, I've slept outside many a Ticketron in my life. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Ticketron, you
0: know, bringing it up, so we're right. all showing our age right now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What it is, yeah. uh, Doctor Esteban? Do you have a final question before we wrap it up?
2: I was just a sort of a comment. We had the students for many years read a book called Ticket Masters, which was I forget who wrote that book, but it was really the history of the from Ticketron up even prior with the, the yeah, yeah. that uh, their whole mail order thing that they did and, and so on. And it was really interesting in the roles that um people like fred rosen played and so on yeah who is that who is that by uh
0: dean budnick and josh baron
2: that's right we had them at uh steve had one of them come in i think baron came in for one of our uh, live seminars no i don't have any more it's a little mind-boggling it's very interesting it's getting me thinking of uh, many alternatives and uh, I yeah. do like that idea of uh, of a retail alternative and why the hell it's just on, on, on sale all the time.
0: Yeah, I think for some bands in the middle area, like I'm going to see Dawes, who's sort of a, a rockish Americana-type band um, who tours every year. Um, and they're the and they don't necessarily sell out right away, but they're playing the beacon in in New York um, on March 18th. And that's where I'm going to see them. Like they're the type of band who it would make sense for. They seem like the genre. They seem like they have the audience who would like to follow that buying pattern that you're talking about. I question if like the, the very big pop star will ever change what they want. There's also the appearance you know, and you're trying to change uh, among their management, maybe about the, the, they all want to be like Taylor Swift now. She has created a culture for the superstar acts and they all want to have that appearance. And that's why I think maybe at the beginning, at least until it works its way up, you know, you might get that middle tier artist to do that.
3: You know, it's really interesting that you go there and uh, maybe it's a conversation for another day, but I think think your comment about how artists look at other artists or artists look up to certain artists. It's, it's a big reason why there's a lot of the entrenched, I'll call them problems, but let's call them realities in the music business. When people say, why do artists still sign the record labels? Why do artists still take the big publishing check? Why do artists do certain things around their touring? I think people forget that they're the artists are people Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of it's aspirational. Like there's something really exciting about, Going and signing that contract and getting that check, even though you probably know this, there's some strings attached. Arguably, most of them maybe don't know, but there's strings attached. I might regret this someday. But my God, I'm going to get my record, and it's going to have such and such logo on it. And my favorite band had that logo on their record. I made it. Like that's that's real, and it's fair. Um, I just don't want to see people get exploited because of their aspirations.
0: Yeah. Well we'll yeah. close it. We'll close it there because we have aspirations of finishing this interview. Uh and there were no <laughs> strings attached. And it was uh it was really good though, Lawrence. So we wanna yeah. thank you.
3: Yeah, thank you both. Uh, thank you both. I when I lived in New York, I was well aware of your program. I didn't realize you were podcasting, so I apologize for that. But I remember Paul being on quite a bit and other friends from Warner. Um, so I feel very honored that you had me. Thank you very Where much. Where are you now? I'm just outside of
0: Seattle. Wow. Uh. Oh, nice. Oh, great. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's great to have you. We, I actually, Paul had introduced me to you so that we could have you on. So it took four years or so to get you on, but, um, but we got you. I'm more interesting now. Yeah, you are. Back, well, you were with Amazon back then, and you were working on a ticketing platform that never worked or that never took place, and that um, I was going to ask you about it, but we're actually out of time, and you probably signed an NDA about it anyway, so you probably can't talk about it. So yeah. it up and down. <laughs> so yeah, so it never happened. It's not even on his LinkedIn. Don't it never happened. All right. So uh, Dr. Esteban, thank you very much for being here today. Well,
2: thank you, Professor Phil.
0: And thank you very much. And thank you listeners for listening because it's great of you to listen and to have ears and to uh, take part in our wonderful, wonderful show called Music Biz 101 and More. So at the end of every show, Lawrence, do you know what we say? We do not say hello. Do you have any idea what we do say at the end of every show? Remind me. We say adios,
1: adios.
3: <laughs> Fairly well.
0: thee well. There we <laughs> go. Grateful, Dan.
1: Wanna be your left in every sexy kind of-